Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, January 22nd, and we're talking big bank earnings and investing today. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel as per usual. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Always great to be here. And Glad uh, to get back in the swing of things in the new year. I, know, I was about to say, it's only our second show so far in 2018 because just the Monday holidays have really gotten in the way. So if you missed us, uh, dear listeners, we missed you too, and we're, we're glad to be back. So before we dive into big bank earnings, which is the big news of the day, um, it wouldn't be a financials episode, let's face it, if I didn't offer you something to email in about. So today's episode is best listened to with a broader perspective on big banks. Um, I highly recommend listening to our October 23rd episode in which we covered Q3 big bank earnings for perspective. And we'll be referencing that some during this episode, but it's a, it's a good kind of background if you've kind of forgotten where things are standing with the big banks. Um, We also discussed how to really understand big banks and how to compare them in that episode, which is something we're just not really going to cover as much this time around. I'm kind of assuming that you've heard that episode or that you have that background. Um, So all that is to say, you can find the October 23rd episode in whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Just scroll back. But if you'd prefer to read a transcript of that episode, drop me a note at industryfocus at fool.com, and I'll be happy to send that along. It might be a little bit faster than listening to the podcast, and you won't have to hear quite as many of my vocalized pauses. So with that in mind, let's talk about big bank earnings. That's Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, the investment banks. Wells Fargo and USB, the commercial banks, and Bank of America, Citigroup, and JP Morgan, the universal banks. But before we get into specifics, let's talk general trends. So the headline thing that I think everyone was talking about was tax reform. One-time hits, but long-term uh, benefits to the banks. But that one-time hit is because they had to write down some expected tax benefits. Yeah. Um, I, I actually wrote an article about a week before bank earnings came out that they would pretty much universally look worse than you thought just because of these big charges they were taking. And some took a lot bigger charges than others. The reason for this is a lot of banks on their balance sheet ca- carry what are called deferred tax assets. Um, in, say, Citigroup's case, this stems from losses that they incurred from the financial crisis fallout. There's a something to the tune of $100 billion. So these are pretty valuable things. And the way to think about it is that if you're assuming a 35% corporate tax rate and all of a sudden the tax rate drops to 21% like it just did, these deferred tax assets lose 14% of their value. So banks had to take a one-time write-down on these assets. You can't continue to carry them on your balance sheet and call them a value that they're not. But... These were uh, generally in the two to four billion dollar range for the big banks. Citigroups was a big exception. They took a twenty two billion dollar hit. Uh, it actually worked out to over eight dollars a share. Um, but like Morgan Stanley took a billion dollars. JP Morgan took two point four, Bank of America two point nine. Goldman actually took a four point four billion dollar hit for another reason. Most of theirs came from the repatriation, which also hit a few of the banks. Um, that is when in the new tax bill, they passed the thing where all your money that you're holding overseas 
is deemed to be repatriated at a 15.5% tax rate. And Goldman had a lot of money sitting overseas. Right. And you see this also hitting some of the big tech giants as well, uh, notably Apple. But when when I first off, of course, when when you hear oh big tax write down, that sounds not great, right? Like obviously wiping twenty two billion dollars uh, out of net income isn't exactly awesome. But really, when you think about it, this is a great problem to have, right? Like, oh no, our our deferred tax assets aren't worth as much because well, our tax rate's gone down, and so long term, that's going to be a big benefit for the banks. And I think that's the other piece that they really highlighted was that all of them were saying, yeah, but this is also going to make operating more uh, more profitable over the long term. Right. Generally, the banks run at effective tax rates of between you know twenty nine thirty one percent. So a 21% corporate tax rate is definitely going to benefit them over the long run. I mean, you got to factor state taxes into that, but most are projecting, you know, 2018 effective tax rates in the low 20s. So this will definitely be a big help over the long run. Right. It would be like me saying, okay, Michael, you pay me $2,000, but your taxes are $1,000 lower per year for forever. <laughs> right. I would take that deal. <laughs> right. And then the banks are happy to do it as well. Right. And I think this also highlights sort of another important thing to think about, which is it's so important to look beyond headline numbers and why, and, and really highlights for me why investing in sort of numbers, looking at revenue growth or earnings per share growth or something like that without real context can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, Citigroup reported a net loss of $6.2 billion last year because of its $22 billion tax charge. But if you net out that $22 billion tax charge, Citigroup actually saw its bottom line in 2017 grow by 6% compared to 2016. And so, if, if there's one key thing I think everyone should learn from this, if you don't know it already, it's that context matters. And if you are really tend to invest based on metrics, it's really, really important to get the backstory to understand what feeds into those metrics because, frankly, stuff like this happens and it can skew the picture in, in ways that could have you make a big mistake if you don't really understand all the nuance around that. So with that in mind, let's head on over to trading revenue, which was another of the kind of big um, headline things that we saw really pretty much across the banks is that trading revenue was down substantially. And this is something we actually highlighted last quarter. Uh, It's in large part because of low volatility. Um, Just frankly, um, (laughs) when the market just keeps going up, uh, it's, it's a lot more difficult to make that kind of money in trading revenue. Right. Um, you know, this is Goldman Sachs and Morgan, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's bread and butter, and they kind of really dropped the ball on it this quarter, <laughs> yeah. for lack of a better term. Um, Goldman Sachs, and fixed income especially, is a really tough environment when volatility stays low like it has. Uh, Goldman's uh, fixed income trading revenue was down by 50% year over year, so half of what it was before. Uh, Morgan Stanley's was down 46%. And surprisingly, some of the universal banks didn't do too bad. Bank of America's was only down 13%. Mm-hmm. Its equity trading revenue didn't drop at all. Uh, I think JP Morgan was somewhere in the middle in the 20s um, as far as their trading revenue drop. But this is definitely something to keep an eye on. And if the market happens to drop and volatility picks up, this is kind of a safety net for some of these banks because you know Goldman's trading revenue is going to go through the roof if 
if the market starts to plunge or gets pretty volatile. So this is definitely an area to keep an eye on. Yes, it's interesting where when things are going well, there are parts of the banks that go, do well. And when things are going poorly, there are parts of the banks that also do well. And of course, those are balanced out by parts that are doing poorly. Um, but in this case, it definitely is a big hit to uh, particularly your Goldman Sachs. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about margin expansion as well. So if you spend time on the internet and if the marketers out there think that you're interested in uh, certificates of deposit and savings rates and such, I'm one of those people that they very much think are interested in this. It's because I am. Um, you've probably seen a tick up in, or an uptick rather, in the advertised CD rates and savings account rates that are uh, kind of making their way around the internet. And that's because interest rates have increased. The Fed has bumped them and plans to continue bumping them. Also, if you have a credit card, you've probably noticed that the interest rate charges that you could theoretically incur if your um, if if you don't pay off your balance each month have also increased. And that's again because of interest rates increasing. So keep in mind when interest rates increase, banks usually increase their payouts, how much that they're going to pay out to try and attract your deposits, particularly in like a CD or a savings account or a money market account. On the flip side, they're also going to charge more for loans. And their margins expand when they're able to charge more, when they're able to grow the amount that they're charging for loans by more than the amount that they're paying out extra for CDs and savings accounts. That's very much what's happening across the board. Yeah, we've seen this kind of in most of the big banks. Um, and it's not a it's not a completely predictable relationship, but generally speaking, the banks are seeing about ten basis points in margin expansion as opposed to this time last year. But when you're talking about banks with you know a, a trillion dollars in loans, that's <laughs> a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> so this is definitely a positive catalyst. And looking forward, the Fed is expected to raise rates at least three times this year. Now we're hearing chatter of maybe four, and another couple times in. 2019, maybe a couple more times in 2020. So we're still in the early stages of the rate hike cycle. Hike cycle. So this could definitely be a trend that we're seeing over the next few years that margins will continue to expand. Yes. Investors in banks with significant loan operations who have been craving seeing some kind of growth for a long time, probably going to see some significant rewards over these next couple of years, at least in terms of you know, at least a moral victory, right? Like I knew this was going to happen eventually. Now, of course, whether stock prices follow that is an open question. How much of that is already baked in uh, into uh, these stock prices is perhaps another another conversation for another day. But definitely the underlying metrics are starting to look increasingly good. And one other thing that I'll highlight, lower efficiency rates. Um, Bank of America and Citigroup, uh, I noticed particularly, had their... Uh, efficiency rates down for 2017. Citigroup is down to 58%, which is just pretty unheard of, given that's historically been a comparatively inefficient bank. For background, remember that an efficiency ratio, kind of 60% or below, is considered very good. So really, really good news to see for those two. Yeah, definitely. What I would uh, add, what I would like to add with efficiency ratios is 
take the fourth quarter efficiency ratios with a big grain of salt just because of these tax charges. Right. Uh, for example, U- U.S. Bank had a 70% efficiency ratio. Right. We all, we all know, anyone who follows that company knows U.S. Bank does not operate at a 70% efficiency ratio. <laughs> right. And that's why I highlighted uh, year long for exactly that reason. Because, yeah, they all crept up in, or at most of them at least, crept up in the fourth in, quarter. In general, take fourth quarter metrics you're reading in U.S. Bank earnings <laughs> right. with a big grain of salt. <laughs> right. I think that's very fair. Cool. So um, with that, we'll get to specific bank-by-bank commentary here in a sec. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Okay, so let's talk about some specifics with each bank, which we've already delved into just a little bit with kind of the overall trends, but I don't know, I really enjoyed this part because it's a chance to really kind of understand how each one's performing. Um, Shall we start with universal banks? Sure. Awesome. So... Citigroup, they saw their net credit losses grow by 7% year over year. For me, this is always a, a wee bit of a concern because, you know, things may look good now, but it's a different ballgame when the credit cycle turns. Of course, frankly, when you look at what the Fed is guiding in terms of additional interest rate hikes, it looks like the good times could be here for a while. So I do understand why they're kind of t- potentially taking on more risk. And keep in mind as well, even with that net credit loss growth, they're still at the bottom of the net credit loss ranges they've said they're comfortable with. And so if you trust management and you think that they are running the bank well, then you probably feel okay about that. Um, one other thing I'll highlight, you know, they're still winding down their legacy assets, mortgage mortgages in particular, um, which will keep impacting top and bottom lines uh, results for a while going forward. But overall, I thought things looked pretty good at Citigroup. They did. Um, one thing I would like to point out kind of about banks like Citigroup that have big credit card businesses, that's a lot of Citigroup's loans come from credit cards. I mean, I have a city credit card in my pocket as, as I'm talking. Right. Uh, credit card kind of purchase volumes have, have shot up over the past few years. This is mm-hmm. a sign of growing consumer confidence and just a general healthy economy. But at some point, you got to keep an eye out for the credit card losses to start creeping up right which it looks like that might be happening now um as you said city's net credit losses went up seven percent year over year um a few of the banks are starting to see just a small uptick in credit card um i i know one company i follow closely is synchrony which we talked about in another podcast um just because they're credit card specific it's really good you know insight on the industry right and theirs have really started to creep up over the past few quarters so for any company, any bank, I would say that's heavy into credit cards, Citi, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, I think, uh, yeah, Wells Fargo is definitely big into credit cards. Um, any of those, just kind of keep an eye on the default rates over the next few quarters. This could kind of give you clues that the economy might be getting a little ahead of itself. Yes, and yeah, that, that's 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 good thing. I mean, frankly, you know, Matt and I love financials. And so a big part of that is just thinking about conservatism in who you'll loan out to. And so we tend to, I think, both get a little bit uncomfortable as 
folks start kind of lending more and more and more and therefore increasing their risk profiles. With that in mind, Bank of America, really good results on the consumer banking side. I mean, deposits are up nine, uh, eight or nine percent and uh, loans up about the same amount. Uh, given that's where they're getting their best return on average allocated capital, which is 24%, I mean, it makes sense to focus their efforts there where possible. Uh, brokerage assets, of which my accounts are <laughs> are a part, are up a stunning 22%, which it re- reflects some really impressive inflows, in addition to, of course, good market returns. Um, uh, frankly, you know, they're firing on most cylinders. I mean, you look, they've reduced branch count by 41 just this last quarter. Um, mobile bank banking active users are up tw- uh, 12% year over year last quarter. I mean, just across the board, it looks pretty good at Bank of America to me. Bank of America, I mean, Citigroup's done well. Bank of America is hands down the biggest transformation since the financial crisis. Absolutely. Um, like you said, in, in mobile, about a quarter of Bank of America's deposits now come from their mobile app, a quarter of the entire bank's deposits. This is a big boost in efficiency for them. Yeah. Um, they're just... They are firing on all cylinders. The, their brokerage assets are up because the Merrill Edge platform is excellent. It was a very smart move being able to integrate that into Bank of America's accounts. It gives them a big leg up over, say, a TD Ameritrade or an E-Trade. Mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of being able to kind of cross-sell a great product to their customers and reducing branch counts, being more tech efficient, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. is, has been a big recipe for success for them so far. Yeah, Bank of America is the new Wells Fargo, as I said in one of my recent articles. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Uh, there's there's good reason to see it as a darling. Uh, and, and J.P. Morgan, let's let's be clear and give them due due credit as well. They've had a pretty good quarter as well. A wee bit weaker on the trading side, of course, but um, frankly, you know, wealth management. Revenue of three point four billion. That's up nine percent year over year. Net income's up twelve percent in that division. Um, Consumer and business banking up 16%, card up 11% year over year, 20% growth in revenue, and 39% growth in net income for commercial banking. I mean, for me, it's 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 hard to overstate how well JPM is doing X trading and how good it looked coming out of this quarter's earnings. I um, also, particularly, I'll, I'll call it the credit card again. I mean, given how much they've spent and how much they've done to make things like Chase Sapphire really work with um, work with consumers. I mean, it's great to see uh, all of those initiatives panning out so well for them. You know, we just need a, if trading revenue turns around, JP Morgan <laughs> could be, you know, forced to be reckoned with. <laughs> right. This was their best quarter in, in a long time. We were actually, we had, before the podcast, we were chatting about how JP Morgan was kind of, you know, had a few questionable quarters, but this was, this was a good one. Yeah. All right, so let's head over to the investment banks. Much, much, much more mixed picture coming out of them. So these are, again, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. I mean, so for me, one of the big things that I sort of came with is, you know, Morgan Stanley said, you know, advisory revenues declined, and I'm quoting here, on lower levels of completed M&A activity. Goldman Sachs, of course, saw an increase in M&A transactions and retained its first place spot. So when you are struggling to uh, get... M&A deals and your competitor is getting them, that's a pretty bad sign. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, Morgan Stanley did have, I, I, they had a very good fourth quarter last year. So yeah, 
the fact that it dropped isn't you know necessarily all that it appears to be right but you're you're right that that sounds kind of like a sneaky way of saying they lost a little bit of market share right um but goldman's m&a business was firing on all cylinders 2017 in general was a great year for m&a activity um, as generally happens in a few years into a bull market right um, f- companies can get more from an acquirer companies have more to spend it's just a great environment so that's definitely a good point of concern yeah of course flip side goldman sachs had its own points of concerns right i mean their wealth management had negative outflows for the quarter yeah uh it was only about a billion dollars but this is the first time in a while i've noticed goldman sachs had money flowing out of their asset management business their assets under management are definitely up for the year just because the markets have been doing so well but this means that people withdrew a billion dollars more from goldman sachs brokerage accounts than they put in uh morgan stanley on the other hand saw about 20 billion dollars of inflows meaning that people are pumping money into those accounts so that's definitely a kind of on the other hand a area of concern for Goldman that's not so much of an area of concern for Morgan Stanley. Yeah, it's funny that sort of these two banks each sort of did better in one area than the other and kind of flubbed it a little bit on the other. So that's certainly something for us to dig more into. And I'll certainly be interested to see how that works next quarter. Um, Let's turn to the commercial banks, USB and Wells. You want to talk USB first? Yeah, USB is... um, they're one of the most boring banks to talk about because they always do well. <laughs> Darn, so hard. <laughs> I mean, uh, return on equity, return on asset, or return on equity of thirteen point four percent, return on assets of one point three three percent. I mean, that's the best you're going to see out, out of the big banks every quarter. Um, one thing I will say about the uh, USB and Wells Fargo, for that matter, um, these banks actually got a a tax benefit. They were carrying deferred tax liabilities on their balance sheet. Uh, USB actually got about a $910 million benefit. Uh, Wells got a little over $3 billion benefit um, from just you know tax liabilities that they would have had to pay at that 35% rate that are now being valued at that 21% rate. So they actually got a nice benefit from that. And those, uh, the ROE and ROA numbers I just read for USB or after that benefit. So including that benefit, they were even better. Um, their interest margin rose by 10 basis points. Um, net interest income up by over 6%. They just had a really predictably good year. <laughs> yes, that's the thing with USV. It's always, well, at least for a while, it's been predictable and good. Let's talk about Wells a little bit. I mean, so there obviously there was the big legal charge, $3.25 billion. That's not exactly great headline news no um like i said that was that was actually just offset by the tax benefit they got right um actually they came out a little bit ahead of that. <laughs> um but it, it, this was just we actually talked about this in a recent episode this was not a good year for wells fargo um and you can tell that by their just their com- the atmosphere on the earnings call just reading the comments in the in the earnings release that management wants to talk about what happens next in 2018, 2019. Um, in 2017, Wells Fargo was one of the, was the only big bank I've seen that whose loan portfolio shrunk by about one, a little over 1%. But that's when everyone else's loan portfolio is, you know, getting six or 7% bigger, that's a big deal. Um, for the full year, you know, return on equity, return on assets look good. But Wells Fargo is more of, 
a question of can they get past the public perception affecting them right now. If you think they can, then it looks like a good buy right now. They're doing a great job of cost cutting, I will say. Um, they say they remain on track to cut $2 billion worth of ongoing costs by the end of 2018 and want to do another $2 billion in 2019. So they're trying to make their operation a little more efficient. It's just whether their revenue growth, loan growth, deposit growth will be in line with the rest of the industry is the question. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So stepping back now and thinking big picture about each of these specific banks, which bank most changed your viewpoints with this quarterly release? I'd say Goldman, not that I'm opposed to Goldman right now. I still think it's a great long-term investment. It just kind of made me a little more cautious. Uh, Goldman rarely gives you things that kind of just make you jump back and say, whoa, that shouldn't be. Um, the, the outflows that we talked about and um, just the massive drop in trading revenue that was the worst in the industry is another one. So there were just a few things that kind of made me take a step back and say, eh, maybe I'll hold off for a little bit. Yeah. And I'll say I've historically not been a huge JPM fan, but not, not that I've disliked it to be clear, just not been its hugest fan, but I've got to say, I, again, X trading, it looked pretty darn good. I mean, just again, to see 9% growth in, in their wealth management, you know, 20% growth in um, commercial banking revenue and 39% net income. I mean, just across the board, I thought things looked really good at JPM. And that is great news for shareholders of that business. So I'm a lot more bullish on JPM than I have been historically. So definitely a lot of interesting stuff for us to come away with. Um, If you have any thoughts on any of the big banks or want to hear our thoughts on any part of it, shoot us an email, industryfocus at fool.com. Folks, that's it for this week's financial show questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.